Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is Monday Matinee on the Mutual Audio Network. Come on, let's all go to the lobby. Because people are staring at us listening to these shows while we're in the theater. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. It's the Sonic Summerstock Playhouse 11th Annual Season! The Sonic Summerstock Playhouse is the seasonal series of radio drama recreations in which producers and actors from the modern age of audio drama recreate and reproduce classic old-time radio plays. The Sonic Summerstock Playhouse is open to all producers and creators of modern audio drama to bring to a contemporary audience these classic plays. And now, over to the host of the Sonic Summerstock Playhouse this season... Waiting in his seat in the balcony, Mr. David Alt. Welcome everyone to our next evening at the Sonic Summerstock Playhouse's 11th season. I'm your host, David Alt, sitting in the balcony as usual before our double feature begins tonight. The Sonic Summerstock Playhouse has been a part of the Sonic Society for its entire run and is a proud member of the Mutual Audio Network. This week we're thrilled to have two comedy features, beginning first with John Bell from Bells in the Bat Free, presenting a trio of duos, in which John explores the excellent comedy duos of Abbott and Costello, the Bickersons, and Amos and Andy. Followed by a joint feature of Bob and Ray with Pete Lutz from Narada Radio Company and John Bell. There's been a buzz here in the audience as people look through the playbill. Amos and Andy have a long checkered past with... Oh, um... Well, the curtain's lifting, and I'm looking forward to discovering Mr. Bell's take on a trio of duos and Mr. Lutz's edition in Bob and Ray. And now, a trio of duos. We start with the Bickersons. The Bickersons never tire. Poor husband John, a chronic insomniac, struggles during an acute patch of his ailment, while Blanche Bickerson attempts to describe his symptoms over the phone to Dr. Hershey. Let's listen. This is worse than ever, Dr. Hershey. Can't you come over? Mrs. Bickerson, it's almost three o'clock. I'm sure his condition is pretty good. I'll come over in the morning. He might recover by morning. I wouldn't want that to happen. What? Wait a minute. I'll carry the phone into the bedroom and you can hear what John's going through. (coughs) Hear that? I can't hear your husband on account of those fire engines. That's my husband. What? (coughs) Incredible. Tell him to do that again. I don't have to. He will. Mrs. Bickerson, there's only one thing that... Just a minute, Doctor. 
Wait until I get the phone out of the room. Now, what were you saying? Well, it's definitely an acute condition. That roaring indicates he's a mouth breather. Maybe. But John isn't breathing through his mouth. What makes you so sure? I taped it shut with plaster. That isn't wise, Mrs. Bickerson. I'd rather you tape his nostrils. It's, it's less dangerous. I tried that last night. I think my husband snores through his pores. There's only one course of treatment, but it's very expensive. It'll be $200 down and $25 a month for 11 months, uh, plus charges for extras. Sounds like buying a new car. I am. Uh, good night, Mrs. Bickerson. Good night, Dr. Hershey. Maybe John's quiet now. John! John! Turn over on your side. Go on. John, stop making that silly noise. I forgot the adhesive tape. What's the matter with you, Blanche? Who taped up my mouth? I put it on to stop you from snoring. Oh, I never heard of such a thing. You had to go and tape up my mouth just when I'm raising a mustache. Pulled out every hair. That's too bad. You've caused me enough suffering. I'd rather lose your mustache than lose my sleep. What's the matter with you, Blanche? What's the matter? I just can't stand it anymore, John. Night after night, I walk the floors and get into a state because you snore and brawl and snore and whine like a bulldozer. <sighs> Is it any wonder I'm so irritable and ill-tempered? If I'm not encouraged and supported by Dr. Hershey, who will help me? Have an almond joy instead. Very funny. Oh, you're so funny, John. I'm not funny. And what about me? I haven't slept for so long, I'm a nervous wreck. I bury my head under the pillows to shut up your snoring. And when I get up every morning, I have a cramp in my collarbone. Rub it with chicken fat. Rub it with chicken fat. You and your stupid remedies. Huh? What do you care what I go through? Blanche, put out the light. I will not. How would you like to go through life with a constant pain in the neck? Well, I took you for better or worse. That's right. Pile it on. Tell people I forced you into this marriage. Did I ever run after you? Blanche, I want to sleep. I did everything to deserve you, and you know it. Did I accept you the first time you proposed? No. Why not? Because you weren't there. You wouldn't have the nerve to propose to anybody else. You sure took advantage of my innocence and youth. Oh, don't give me that youth stuff. You are no spring chicken. I must have been, or I never would have picked up a worm like you. Oh, hearty har har. Why don't you go to sleep? Never a kind word. Never a sign of affection. Never a good night kiss. And to think... You used to kiss me every time I turned around. Ew, I never kissed you when you turned around. I've been a trusting fool all these years. I should have known you don't love me. You never did. I did, too. I, I mean, I do, too. You don't. You don't, you don't. Oh, Blanche, I love you. You're lying. Swear you love me. I hope I drown in a pool of bourbon if I'm lying. There's the answer to all our problems. You think more of a bottle of bourbon than you do of me. It's true, isn't it, John? What's true? You're in love with a bottle of bourbon. Oh, for heaven's sake. Go on, say it. I can stand the truth. Just give it to me straight. 
It's better with soda. Don't try and switch things around. You know you indulge in it more than what is absolutely necessary. Hmm. No other wife would put up with a thing like that. Now, now, just a minute, Blanche. I resent that. I don't care. You can accuse me of being selfish or inconsiderate or anything else, but drinking is not one of my failures. No, it's one of your few successes. That is not true. I don't drink more than any six men you know. Huh? Oh, you tricked me into that. The only reason I use bourbon is because the doctor prescribed it. He said I would stop snoring if I took a jigger of bourbon and two aspirin before I went to bed tonight. That's not what you do, though. It is. It is not. You're six months behind on the aspirin and two years ahead on the bourbon. Well, the aspirin gives me a headache. You'd better listen to me, John. We'd get along beautifully if you'd think of me once in a while. If there's an extra dollar in the house, it goes for your pleasure. <sighs> Only two weeks ago, you had your life insured for $10,000. What about it? You're always thinking of yourself. Myself? Now, what kind of idiotic talk is that, Blanche? If I die, you get the 10000 You know perfectly well that you have no intention of dying. <sighs> you only got your life insured to tantalize me. I'll drop dead in the morning. You say it, but you won't do it. Blanche, what's the matter with you? Do you realize what you're saying? I didn't mean it that way. I'm sorry. It's okay. Just calm down. Try to get some sleep. I can't sleep. I'm too upset. You can't stand the sight of me, can you, John? I can stand it fine. I'd like to hear you talk that way to Gloria Gooseby. No, no, no. Don't start with Gloria Gooseby. Anybody could be pretty with the money she spends on clothes. Every time her husband wants a kiss, he has to buy her a dress. You're lucky you've got a cheap wife like me. If you were married to Gloria Gooseby, you'd have to pay for her kisses. I'm not married to her, and I don't get them for nothing. And I hate Gloria Goosey. I'm warning you, Blanche, if I ever hear you mention her name again, I'll... I'll... That's right. Hit me. You've done everything else. Oh, for heaven's sake. Blanche, will you please put out the light? I have to get up so early in the morning. Good night. Are you angry, John? No, I'm just sick. Do you hate me? You know I do. I mean, I don't hate you, Blanche. What's the matter with you tonight? What have you done? I've been so upset. I... I forgot to give you something. It came for you yesterday. A letter? Special delivery. And registered. It was addressed to you and marked strictly personal. And private. Oh, what did it say? You needn't be so snide about it, John. I wouldn't have read it, but I accidentally steamed it over when I was pouring myself a cup of tea. Let me see it. You can read it in the morning. Go to sleep. I want to read it right now. Put the lights on and give it to me. Oh, all right. Here it is. Okay. Uh, oh, it's from the government. Good night, John. Uh, Mr. John Bickerson, sir, in checking your return for 1946, we find you have overpaid your taxes. <laughs> Enclosed, find a check for $76.50. <laughs> I say, what a break. I, I finally, I... Blanche? Huh? Where's the check?
Huh? Don't act sleepy now. Hmm. What did you do with my seventy-six dollars? I I bought a beautiful Evan handbag. It's shark skin trimmed with snake skin, and it matches my calfskin shoes. Seventy-six dollars for a shark skin snake? Take it back! Take it back! Do you hear me? Stop screaming! How could you squander my hard-earned money like this? I deny myself everything. I've been cutting the scraps off your old garter belts and wearing them for bow ties. I had my feet hand-soled in a blacksmith just to save on shoes. I don't even drink my bourbon anymore. I just lick the label and stick my nose in the bottleneck. I don't spend a nickel on myself. You bought a new watch chain yesterday. What watch chain? That was a replacement zipper for my pants. You get that money back. You hear me? How can you do that, John? You didn't buy me anything for our anniversary. Can I keep it, please? No. Please. Oh, what's the use? Can I keep the bag, John? How I slave and sweat to bring money and soul together, deprive myself of every tiny luxury to try to make both ends meet. It isn't worth it. One fatal swoop, and she squanders two years of savings. What's a man got to live for? I wish I had the courage to. Maybe I will. Life means nothing anymore. It's one thing to do. John. <laughs> Oh, John! The Bickersons, starring Jolene Roxbury as Blanche, JolieNRoxbury dot com, and John Bell as the Doctor and John Bickerson, TheBatFree dot com. The second of our duo triple play is coming up right after station identification. We now pause for station identification. This is the Mutual Audio Network. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce our next guest. They just finished filming their third movie this week. You've heard him on radio, you've seen him in the movies. Here they are, Abbott and Costello. Well, Costello, I'm going to New York with you. You know, Bucky Harris, the Yanks manager, gave me a job as coach for as long as you're on the team. Right, certainly do. Now, what's going on? All the Abbott's out there. Costello's running late. He'll be here any oh, second. Uh, that Abbott's yeah, already started. Yeah, they've both done this routine so many times they could do it in their sleep. I'm here, I'm here. Sorry, I'm late. I'm going right on stage. Get out of the way. Pet names like Dizzy Dean and... Look, Abbott, if you're the coach, you must know all the players. Daffy Dean. Well, I never met the guy, so you'll have to tell me their names. Then I'll know who's playing on the team. French? You mean funny names? Goofy Dean. Yeah, well, I see. Uh, well, we have on the bags, we have who's on first, what's on second, and I don't know who's on third. His brother, Daffy? I say, who's on first, what's on second, and I don't know who's on third. And their French cousin? Yes. Goofy? Yes. That's what I want to find out. Well, I should. Are you the manager? Yes. You're going to be the coach, too? Who? And you don't know the fellas' names? Who? Then who is on first? Who? I mean the fellas' name. Who is on first? The guy on first. That's the man's name. The first baseman. Yeah. The guy playing first base. That's it. I'm asking you who's on first. Yeah. What's whose name? Certainly. Well, go ahead and tell me. That's right. That's who? Every dollar of it. 
Look, you got a first baseman. Who? Who's playing first? That's it. When you pay off the first baseman every month, who gets the money? He does. Every dollar. Sometimes his wife comes down and collects it. All I'm trying to find out is the fella's name on first base. Yes. The guy that gets the money. What's wrong with that? Who gets the money on first base? Who? Whose wife? Who? Look, all I want to know is... When you sign up the first baseman, how does he sign his name to the contract? That's how he signs it. The guy? Yes. How does he sign it? No, what's on second base? Who? Who is on first? All I'm trying to find out is, what's the guy's name on first base? Well, don't change the players around. I'm not asking you who's on second. Take it easy, buddy. One base at a time. That's right. I'm not changing nobody. All right. All I'm asking you, who's the guy on first base? No, what is on second? Okay. Who's on first? What's the guy's name on first base? No. Oh, he's on third. We're not talking about him. Now let's get back to first. I'm not asking you who's on second. Well, you mentioned his name. I don't know. No, who's playing first? Now, how did I get on third base? What's on second? If I mention the third baseman's name, who did I say is playing third? He's on third. What's on first? All right, what do you want to know? I don't know. Why do you insist on putting who on third base? There I go, back on third again. Will you stay on third base and don't go off it? No, what is on second? Now, who's playing third base? No, who is on first? What am I putting on third? Third base. You don't want who on second? Sure. I don't know. Third base. Why? Look, you got an outfield. Well, I just thought I'd tell you. The left fielder's name. Who is playing first? I just thought I'd ask you. No, what is on second? Then tell me who's playing left field. No, who is on first? Third base. I'm not... You, stay out of the infield. I want to know what's the guy's name in left field. Why? I'm not asking who's on second. No, he's center field. I don't know. Third base. Well, that's the fella's name. And the left fielder's name. Sure. Because. Tomorrow. I'm telling you then. Look, 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 look. You got a pitcher? Tomorrow. The pitcher's name. What time what? You don't want to tell me today? Now listen, who is not pitching? Who is on... Well, go ahead. What's on second? Third base. What time? Certainly. At what time tomorrow are you going to tell me who's pitching? Today. I'll break your arm. You say who's on first. I want to know what's the pitcher's name. Now you've got it. I don't know. Third base. So they tell me. Got a catcher? Yes. The catcher's name. Now that's the first thing you said right. Today. And tomorrow's pitching. Well, that's all you have to do. All we got is a couple of days on the team. You, you know, I'm a catcher too. Yes. I get behind the plate. Do some fancy catching. Tomorrow's pitching on my team and a heavy hitter comes up. Naturally. Now the heavy hitter bunts the ball. When he bunts the ball, me being a good catcher, I want to throw the guy out at first base. So I pick up the ball and I throw it to who? Naturally. I don't even know what I'm talking about. Naturally. You throw the ball to first base? Naturally. Now who's got it? No you don't. You throw the ball to who? Look, if I throw the ball to first base, someone's got to get it. Now who has it? That's different. Who? You're not saying that. Naturally? You throw it to who? So I pick up the ball and throw it to naturally. That's it. Naturally. Listen, you ask me. That's what I said. Naturally. I throw the ball to naturally? You throw the ball to who? Naturally. That's it. That's what I said. You just changed them around. I throw the ball to who? Yes. Now you ask me. Uh, what? Naturally. Oh, that's our shortstop. Same as you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Same as you. I throw the ball to who? Whoever it is drops the ball. The guy runs to second who picks up the ball. Throws it to what? What throws it to? I don't know. I don't know. Throws it back to tomorrow. Triple play. Another guy gets up and it's a long fly ball to because. Why? I don't know. He's on third and I don't give a darn. I said I don't give a darn. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. That was Abbott and eventually Costello.
No, that's the first time that routine has ever made sense to me. And now, the adventures of Amos and Andy. The year is 1928. Amos and Andy bought a second-hand automobile and start wait, wait, in the... Excuse me, excuse me. Pardon me. What? Did I hear you say you're doing Amos and Andy? Well, yes. Why would you do that? It was a very popular show from the late 20s to the mid-40s. Yes, 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 yes. I know that, but it's it's Amos and Andy. I know. It says so in the script right here. Are you going to do the outrageous, stereotypical dialects that people might find offensive? Well, there are dialects involved, and possibly someone may find it offensive, but... That's it. Forget it. I wash my hands with the entire thing. That'd be the second door on the left. That's can... not what I meant. Just uh, your funeral, buddy. Go ahead, go ahead. Do the show, do the show. Fine, fine. All right, thank you. Uh, where was I? Amos and Andy bought a second-hand automobile and started in the taxicab business. As the scene opens now, we find the boys in their rooming house out in the hall by the telephone. They have an appointment to make a couple of calls at a specified time. But daylight savings time has them somewhat confused. Oh, I say, Andy, wait a moment. Before we start calling these people, let us figure out what time it is. The trouble with my watch is it's an hour slow. Well, daylight saving time makes it an hour fast, so that makes it even, doesn't it? What time do you have now? According to my watch, I have eight o'clock. You have eight o'clock, but it's nine o'clock, isn't it? Wait a minute, it's ten o'clock. You see, my watch is an hour slower than your watch. I don't have a watch. Ah, then that makes it. That makes it what? Wait a minute here. What what time is it? We are supposed to call this man at nine o'clock tonight. His wife says that he won't be home until nine o'clock. Well, yesterday, when it was at nine o'clock, my watch was at eight o'clock, and I didn't change the time on it. Now, today, they started a daylight saving, and that makes my watch two hours off. Well, then it's... Ten o'clock, isn't it? We were supposed to call the man at nine o'clock. Then we're an hour late, aren't we? Not if the man's watch is wrong, we're not. Oh, this is the biggest mess I've ever been in. Go ahead, call it a man up. Tell him these clocks got us all to mix it up. What is this number again? You have it on a piece of a paper there. I don't have it. Wait a minute. Uh, here it is. Uh... Calumet 6570. Go ahead, call it a man. I've got to put a nickel in this telephone first, don't I? You have a nickel, don't you? Yes, I have one. Now, wait a minute before you call the man up. Uh, the man's name is Jarvis. Yes, he's the man that we bought the second-hand automobile from. Now, what you do is tell the man we have employed Sylvester to work on the automobile, and when Sylvester get over there in the morning, tell Mr. Jarvis to let him get to work on it. When I called Mr. Mr. Jarvis before today, his wife said that I should call him again at nine o'clock. He'd be back home. So, I guess it's all right to go ahead and call him now. Uh, don't you think so? Go ahead. Put a nickel in there. Well, here I go. That number is Calumet 6570. Hello, hello. I, uh, I want Calumet 6570. Yes, yes, that's right. Tell Mr. Jarvis that you're talking for me. Let him know that I am the president of the company, and I am right here by the telephone. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, hello, is Mr. Jarvis home, please? Yes, thank you, ma'am. Who was that? That was his wife. 
I guess. Uh, she says she'll get him on the telephone. Tell him a Sylvester's a coming over there now. Find out what's the matter with the thing so Sylvester can fix it. Hello, hello, Mr. Jarvis. Yes, this here is Amos. I say, I say, this is Amos. Tell him I am the president. And he is the president. What? No, not Calvin Coolidge. Andy. I say, uh, no, this is Amos. Don't you remember? We're the ones that bought that second-hand automobile from you. Yes, yes, that's right. We are the ones. Tell him I am standing right here. Andy is standing right here with me. What's that? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Hold the phone. He wants to know what we want. Go ahead and tell him what we want. Hello, Mr. Jarvis. Uh, this is Amos again. Don't forget, I'm the president of the company. Don't forget about Andy. He's the president. Uh, you know Sylvester. Uh, oh, he says he knows him all right. But that's not anything. We know he knows him. We know that you know that he knows that you know... Uh... Tell him Sylvester's going to work on automobile. Hello, Mr. Jarvis. What I called you up about is Sylvester is going to start tomorrow, and he's going to work on the automobile. Ask him what we must get Sylvester to do when he starts working on the car. We want to get him to fix it, don't we? Well, ask Mr. Jarvis what's the matter with the thing. Hello, Mr. Jarvis. Yes, this... This is Amos again. Uh, what must we get Sylvester to do when he starts working on it? Uh, do what? What did he say? What did he say? Put overalls on the car. Oh, oh overhaul the car. Yes, yes. Was that? Uh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. He said something about growls need vinding. Ask him again. Hello, Mr. Mr. Jarvis. This is Amos again. You say the growls need vinding? Oh, the, 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 the vowels? The vowels, eh? Yes, the, the vowels need grinding. Wait a minute. Tell him we're not going to grind anything. Hello, Mr. Jarvis. This is Amos again. Andy says we aren't going to grind anything. What's that? Oh, wait a minute. I'll tell him. He says you don't have to grind them unless you want to, but they need grinding. Ask him what else is the matter with the thing. Hello, Mr. Jarvis. This is Amos. Yes. What else does the car need done to it? What's that? You say the crankshaft. The crankshaft. Let the crank go. We don't need a crank. We'll put a starter under the car. Let the crank go. Tell him he can keep at the crankshaft. You can keep the crankshaft. What's that? I can't hear you, Mr. Jarvis. You are getting dumber and dumber. Hello. Yes, you're getting dumber. I mean, hello, Mr. Jarvis. Tell him that the Sylvester will be there in the morning. Hello, Mr. Jarvis. Andy says Sylvester will be there in the morning. I said that Andy said Sylvester will be there in the morning. No, no, Sylvester. Sylvester. Don't holler so much. Don't holler so much. <sighs> Wait a minute. Shut up a minute, will you? Let me talk to the man. You don't have got the sense of a monkey. Hello, Mr. Jarvis. You don't have the sense of a... Wait a minute. This here's Amos. Yes, I say this is Amos, I tell you, Mr. Jarvis. I'll come over and talk to you. That's the only way you'll get it in your head. That's the only way you'll get it in your head. Wait a minute. No, hello? Hello? Oh, dear. It would appear that he's getting the crank. And we get at the shaft. This has been Amos and Andy. Thank you for listening. And take your me book off and throw it in a stereotype Irishman. Now, from approximately coast to coast, it's the Bob and Ray Show. With John Bell as Bob Elliott and Pete Lutz as Ray Goulding. And 
And it's all possible thanks in part to two of our old sponsors, Einbinder, the greatest name in flypaper. This year, more than ever before, make flypaper an important part of your life. And by the Monongahela Metal Foundry, makers of shiny steel ingots. Monongahela, the metal foundry that casts its ingots with a housewife in mind. And welcome again, everybody, to the show and some exciting news. Because today we announce our Bob and Ray final closeout absolute clearance sale. We are being forced to vacate our premises. Our lease has been foreclosed. Our landlord says we must go, and his ultimatum is your good luck. We have to get rid of every last piece of our tremendous stock at a ridiculous sacrifice. Because we must go, you can buy men's two-pants suits for sixteen fifty. Men's three-pants suits for $17.50. Men's four-pants suits for $18.59. All men's all-pants suits for $19.50. You can get men's complete winter overcoats at $22.50 and men's winter overcoats without sleeves for $17.50. Our lease is up, and you get the benefit. Men's winter underwear with long legs and long sleeves for $1.75. An extra pair of legs for only $0.38. The landlord says vacate, and that's it. Hello? Yes? What? We can? Darn it! What's the matter? The landlord says we can stay another year. Have you noticed the in-vogue words? Words that you seem to hear more and more every day? Words like pejorative, charisma, and dichotomy. Suskindisms, we call them, and I use that in the pejorative sense. And expertise. You seem to hear that every day more and more. Expertise implies that you're listening, I guess, to the words of an expert. And that's one thing we have plenty of here. Experts. We're fortunate to have with us now the world-renowned Komodo Dragon Authority from Upper Montclair, New Jersey. His name is Dr. Daryl Dexter. Doctor, would you tell everybody all about the Komodo Dragon, please? The Komodo dragon is the world's largest living lizard. It's a ferocious carnivore. It's found on the steep-sloped island of Komodo in the lesser Sunda chain of the Indonesian archipelago and the nearby islands of Rinja, Padar, and Flores. Where do they come from? Your Komodo dragon, the world's largest living lizard, is found in the lesser Sunda chain of the Indonesian archipelago and the nearby islands of Rinja, Padar, and Flores. We have two in this country at the National Zoo in Washington, which were given to us by the late former premier of Indonesia, Sukarno, some years ago. I believe I read somewhere that a foreign potentate gave America some Komodo dragons. Is that true? Yes. The former premier of Indonesia, Sukarno, gifted this country with two Komodo dragons, world's largest living lizards, some years back. And they're now residing at the National Zoo in Washington. Well, now, if we wanted to take the children to see a Komodo dragon, where would we take the children to see a Komodo dragon? If you were in the vicinity of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., you would take the kiddos to the National Zoo. And there you would see two Komodo dragons, the world's largest living lizard. There is a stuffed Komodo dragon in the lobby of the Royal Hotel in Kathmandu, Nepal. Um, they're of the lizard family? Yes, they are the world's largest living lizard and a ferocious carnivore. One swipe of the Komodo dragon's tail can render an enemy senseless. Doctor, I believe we've just about exhausted the subject. I want to thank you for coming here from Upper Montclair. I know it was a great hardship for you to get here today. Do you have a ride home? No, I don't. 
Well, maybe somebody from the audience will give you a ride home after the show. I know we all know a great deal more now about the Komodo dragon than we did a few moments ago. you to journey with us through space and time to the distant future for another strange story from the galaxy of the baboons for our latest weird adventure we move through a time warp to the year 6128 a superior race of monkeys has taken over the universe and as darkness settles over the barren landscape we find one of the creatures loping through the entrance of his dwelling place I'm home, Margaret. Where the devil are you? Is that you, Harold? Yes, yes, of course it's me. Who are you expecting, King Kong? Harold, I don't know why you have to come home in such a foul mood every night. Baboons are supposed to be cute and friendly. Well, I don't know what you expect. Our pet human wasn't out at the front gate to meet me when I came home. And I see he hasn't even fetched the evening paper. Where is he? Asleep under the porch again? I really don't know. He was playing with his ball in the yard just a little while ago. But don't get yourself all upset about it. I'll have dinner on the table in a few minutes. I wish we didn't have to eat as soon as I get home every night, Margaret. I'd like to unwind by swinging in my tire out in the yard for a while before dinner. Well, it just makes it so late when I get through in the kitchen. All this housework is driving me bananas. Margaret, I wish you'd stop using that expression... It seems to reflect on our heritage somehow. I'm sorry. It was only a figure of speech. My, you are in a grouchy mood tonight. Well, I've had a hard day at the plant. Moberly called in sick, Colgrove still on his vacation, and everything falls on my shoulders. Was Colgrove the one I met at the company picnic last summer? A little short monkey with a speech impediment? No, no, that's Gunderson. Colgrove's a tall gorilla. I guess I don't know him then. What? I said I don't know him. I never met the ape. Well, the way you swallow your words, I can't hear half of what you say. Well, I'm sorry. I was just talking to myself anyway. About what? About Colgrove. I was trying to think if I knew him, but I guess I don't. What? I said I don't know Colgrove. Well, you haven't missed much. Anyway, he's on vacation this week. Yes, you mentioned that. Now do sit down at the table and eat something. I've had a dreadful day, picking fleas off the children all afternoon. It's been rough at the plant, too. Having two monkeys out at once puts everything on my shoulders. But the boss doesn't care, just so the work gets done by somebody. I suppose that's true. What? I said I suppose it's true that nobody cares how hard you have to work. That's the way it seems to me too, Margaret. But at my age, I just have to keep scrambling to stay ahead of the young baboons or after my job. Only today, one of them claimed I'm getting hard of hearing. Well, that's a terrible thing to say to you. What? And so, we journey back across the endless reaches of space and time to our own world as we know it. But soon, we'll be making another fantastic voyage into the future, when we'll hear Harold say... Odd, I never picked up the trash on Wednesday before. That's in the next strange episode of... The Galaxy of the Baboons!
It's mystery time on the Bob and Ray Show, presenting Mr. Treat, Chaser of Lost People. Today, the surly old investigator takes from his files the case he calls the overdose of very fatal poison murder clue. Our story opens in the luxurious New York penthouse apartment of wealthy Jacobus Pike, famous backer of Broadway plays. As we hear Pike call for his valet, Rudy. Rudy, come here. You call, Mr. Pike? Yes, Rudy. I want you to take this manuscript back to Greg Marlowe, young playwright who is secretly in love with my sister Julia, who dreams of a career on the stage. There's a note inside which explains to him my reason for refusing to back his play on Broadway. Okay, Mr. Pike. I'll, I'll be back as soon as possible. That young upstart thinks he can coerce me into putting up my money for any such ridiculous play as that. Well, he has another... What? How did you get in here? What do you want? No, no. Don't shoot me with that gun you're holding. I'll do anything. Don't come any closer. No, no. Oh, you've murdered me. You sneaked in here wearing the disguise of someone I don't know. Waited until I was alone, and then you killed me. Oh, I'm dead. Several hours later in the office of Mr. Treat, chaser of lost people, we see the surly old investigator at his desk as his assistant Spike Glancy ushers in a tall young man with dark features. We hear Spike say, This gentleman wants to see you, boss. Usher him in, Spike. He's a tall young man with dark features. I can see that, Spike. He looks guilty to me, boss. No man is innocent if he is proven guilty, Spike. Show him in. You see, mister? I told you Mr. Treat was fair. That will be all, Spike. Sit down, sir. I'll be right outside if you need me, boss. All right. Now, what can I do for you, sir? Mr. Treat, I am Gregory Marlowe, young playwright secretly in love with wealthy Jacobus Pike's sister, Julia, who dreams of a career on the stage. Come, come, young man, you'll have to put your cards on the table if you want me to help you. I'm coming to that, Mr. Treat. This morning, I went to Pike's expensive New York penthouse apartment. You went there believing that Pike's sister, Julia, had talked her brother, wealthy Jacobus, into putting up the money for the new play that you've written. Mr. Treat, you're uncanny. I'm right, then. No. I went there expecting to have Pike give me a check for my play so that I can start producing it next week. Aha! Uh -huh. What did you find, Marlowe? I found Pike dead, Mr. Treat. Dead? Dead, Mr. Treat. Murdered by an overdose of a very fatal poison. Dreadful! And you want me... I want you to help me, Mr. Treat. My assistant, Spike, and you and I will first go to the murdered man's apartment. Oh, Spike! Yes, boss? Open the door before you come in. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, boss. What can I do? Get my car out, Spike. Mr. Marlowe here is going to accompany us to the apartment of the late wealthy Jacobus Pike. I think we have stumbled on a murder. I hope we are not too late, Mr. Treat. Oh, it's you, Mr. Marlowe. Hello, Rudy. This is Mr. Treat, Chaser. Not the surly old investigator. That's right, Bucko. And who might you be? If I'm not mistaken, Spike, this is Rudy, Mr. Pike's valet. That's right, Mr. Treat. Oh, I've heard a lot about you, Mr. Treat. Oh, come in. There he is, Mr. Chase, over there on the floor where I found him. The name is Treat, Marlowe. He seems nervous, boss. Shall I frisk him? No, that's not necessary. I've already seen to that. Oh, Rudy, 
Will you ask Julia Pike, wealthy sister, to step in here, please? Boss, Greg Marlowe here is a young playwright, secretly in love with Julia, who dreams of a career on the stage. Exactly, Spike. I want to question everybody. But, Mr. Treat, Julia doesn't have anything to do with... Ah, Miss Julia Pike. You sent for me, Mr. Chase? Yes, come in, Julia. Sit down. And the name is Lost, Miss Pike, not Chase. No, Spike, you're people, and I'm Treater Chasing Lost Vistas. Well, aren't you a little misted yourself, Trace? If you folks don't mind, I'll I'll just step out to the kitchen here. Not so fast, Rudy. Mr. Trader here thinks you lose people. Or at least we'll chase it that way for now. Mr. Loster, you've chosen a lot of treats in your career. On the contrary, Julia, cheating is not tracing choosers. And if anyone can lose my boss, Mr. Cheapful here can poop. Thank Thanks for the vote of Tweedle, Pete. I have a headache, Mr. Poet. May I chapel to the lost room and treat? Not so fast, Julia. Spike, get my car. Right, boss. No one is to leave this room until I get back. In the meantime, you are all under suspicion. I think every one of you is lost. But, boss... You left all the suspects back there at Wealthy Jacobus Pike's famous Broadway backer's apartment. What if they try to escape? Exactly what I'm figuring, Spike. One of those persons, Julia Pike, sister of Wealthy Jacobus Pike, Rudy, his valet, or Greg Marlowe, handsome young playwright secretly in love with Julia, who dreams of a career on the stage, is the guilty one. Oh, then it's some kind of trap, boss? Quiet, Spike. What? Act as if nothing has happened, Spike. I'm sure that someone is listening outside the door. I'll just walk over to the door quietly. Who's there, boss? No one, Spike. I could have sworn. Spike, what are you doing with that gun? Pointing it at you, boss. But you can't mean that you... that you're... That's right, boss. But just as soon as I rip off this mask... You'll see that I'm not really your assistant, Spike, but I'm... Julia Marlowe! Yes, Mr. Treat. No one, Spike. I I, I could have sworn that... Spike, mask... See that I am really... Rudy, Mr. Pike's valet. At last we are together, in love as we are with each other. Rudy! Julia! And so another case from the files of Mr. Treat is marked Solved. Listen next time when the surly old investigator brings us the shanty with the open door on the old vacant lot across the railroad tracks murder clue. And now it's time for another story of drama and human emotion. A tale well designed to keep you in... Anxiety. Here to set the stage for this week's yarn is the famous lecturer and world traveler, Commander Neville Putney. Commander, I presume that you've reached into your amazing file and brought forth another tale well designed to keep our listeners in... Anxiety. Indeed I have, young man. Like all my stories, this one is a true account of ordinary men and women leading ordinary lives, never dreaming that they are about to become enmeshed in a web of... anxiety. One of the central figures in this week's tale was a young reservations clerk at the Greyhound bus station in Honolulu. Her name is Lorelai Leilani, and as our story begins, Miss Leilani is just putting down the phone on her desk. 
Terror is written all over her face as she turns to her immediate superior, Mr. Darkweiler, and says, Good grief, Mr. Darkweiler. I feel as if there's terror written all over my face. An anonymous caller just phoned from New York to say there's a bomb in the bus station. Time to go off at nine o'clock. Good grief, Miss Leilani. We must get the Honolulu Police Bomb Squad in on this matter at once. There's no time for that now. Look at the giant clock on the bus station wall. It's barely four minutes to nine. Good grief, you're right. Then our only hope is to herd these thousands of milling passengers outside to safety before the explosion. But can't you understand? There's no time for that. We have only three minutes left. And that bomb must be hidden in one of those 585 lockers that run the full length of that wall over there. Good grief, Miss Leilani. Surely you can't be suggesting that the two of us search 585 lockers in less than three minutes. Why, that figures out to... Let's see. Three goes into five once, with two to carry. um... There's no time for that sort of precise calculation now. All we can do is search as many lockers as we have time for and hope that Lady Luck is on our side. You're right, Miss Leilani. The odds are at least a hundred to one against our opening the right locker in time. But if we're destined to be blown to smithereens, then let it be fate that decides this game of chance for us. Boy... That was one of your most spine-tingling stories yet, Commander. But you can't just leave us all in anxiety this way. Did Miss Leilani and Mr. Dockweiler pick the right locker in the few fleeting seconds they had left to hunt for the bomb? Well, as it developed, they had a good deal more time than they thought. If you'll recall, Miss Leilani mentioned that the anonymous phone call came from New York. And of course, when it's nine on the East Coast, it's only four in Honolulu. So they actually had five hours to find the bomb, which was ample time. Well, that's ridiculous. They were going by the clock on the Honolulu bus station wall, and it wouldn't have been set on New York time. Well, perhaps the clock had stopped the night before and nobody noticed it. I do wish you wouldn't nitpick this way at all the stories I draw forth for my amazing file. It might cause people to think that some of them aren't entirely factual. Well, nobody in his right mind could believe that one. The whole idea of having it take place in the Greyhound bus station at Honolulu is absurd. Where could a person go on a Greyhound bus from there? I didn't say anybody was taking a bus. I merely said that people were milling about the station. Now read your closing announcement, you cheeky young blighter. Well, after that story, I sure feel like a fool reading what's written down here. Never mind your emotional problems, just read it. Okay. Friends, be sure to join us again next time when Commander Putney once more reaches into his incredible file of amazing true stories and brings forth a tale well-designed to keep you in... Anxiety. Now, another chapter in the endless story of intrigue as it unfolds among the prominent families of Garish Summit. There, in stately splendor, far removed from the squalid village below, they fight their petty battles over power and money. As our action begins, it is Christmas Eve at the Merchfield Estate, and the servants are holding their annual holiday party in the root cellar near the main house. Suddenly, the voice of Lloyd the gardener can be heard speaking out 
above the festive gaiety. I sure hate these Christmas parties Miss Agatha makes us hold every year in the root cellar. It's way below zero in here. Oh, I shouldn't be too critical of Miss Agatha Lloyd. She's a good sort. Now just pull up one of those bags of turnips and sit down. We're going to sing carols soon. Keep your shirt on, Wilfred. I'm trying to find an ice pick to chip off a piece of eggnog. It sure would help if Miss Agatha put some electric lights down here. Now, now, Lloyd. Miss Agatha's a good sort. Just try to get into the spirit of the holiday. My word, Lloyd. You fell right in my lap. Do stop flailing around in the dark and sit on one of those turnip bags, Lloyd. I still need an ice pick, but I give up. It really ticks me off that we have to celebrate Christmas down here. I can just picture the family up in the main house, all comfy. Confound it all. I've rung three times for the butler to come freshen my brandy. Where is that slothful wretch? Now, Rodney, just sit down in your wing chair and relax. I told the servants they could have 45 minutes for their Christmas party, so Wilfred's probably down in the cellar with the others. It seems to me that you're terribly lax with the hired help during the holidays, Mother. I was especially upset when I got your memo today ordering me to close the lead mine an hour early just because it's Christmas Eve. Well, I know it causes a drop in those production charts you keep, but your brother Caldwell said it was cheaper to close early than to risk another riot like the miners staged last Christmas. I might have known that any scheme promoting idleness would have been Caldwell's idea. Confound! The servants still don't answer the bell! They're probably all drunk down there by now. I can just picture them. Don't bother thawing out your eggnog over that lighted match, Wilfred. I just found out it's been made with sour milk. Can you beat that? Miss Agatha made our Christmas eggnog with sour milk. There, there, Lloyd. I'm sure it was unintentional. Miss Agatha's a good sort. Now... Let's sing carols. I've just about had it up to here with you, Wilfred. Up to where? I can't see you in the dark. Oh, sorry. I'm pointing at my throat. I just don't understand why you always stick up for Miss Agatha when she makes us hold our party in this damp cellar. Even the toynips down here are rotten. Can't you smell them? Yes, but I'm sure Miss Agatha didn't know that... Are those rotten turnips? I thought it was Lloyd's aftershave I smelled. This is no time for sarcasm, Lucille. I was just saying that Miss Agatha's a good sort and fond of us all. Oh, knock it off, Wilfred. Miss Agatha's an old bat. You're the only one who likes her, and I often wonder why. Hopefully, you'll never learn why. I can just picture the problems it would cause if anyone ever found out. Great Scott! I just found out why that slimy little butler is always fawning over Mother. Don't shout, Caldwell. The Airedale was sleeping by the fire and you startled it. I don't see why you came here on Christmas Eve anyway, demanding to see your mother's legal papers. It was because I couldn't contain my curiosity about her early life, Mr. Pardue. And look what I found. A document dated 1943 that makes a British war orphan her legally adopted son. That son, now grown to manhood, is our family butler, Wilfred Llewellyn Nimby. 
Will Wilfred freeze in the root cellar before he can assert his rightful claim to a room in the main house? Can Mr. Pardue be bribed to destroy the only known copy of his adoption papers? And what about the Airedale that only pretends to be asleep? Perhaps we'll learn more the next time we hear Lloyd the Gardener say... I didn't know you could make stuff out of fermented toynips that would pack this kind of a wallop. <laughs> That's next time when we resume our story of endless intrigue on Garish Summit. Now let's pay another visit to the Hobby Hut. The special feature conducted by Neil Clummer, editor of Wasting Time magazine. Neil is nationally known as Mr. Hobby himself. I see his guest has arrived, so let's join them. Thanks, Bob. And greetings, hobbyists everywhere. My guest today is Mr. Mulford B. Thaxter of Skokie, Illinois, who is one of the leaders in his field, collecting numbers from places where they ask you to take a number. Right, Mr. Thaxter? Well, Neil, I'm, I'm a little too modest to call myself a leader in the field, but I do have over 1,200 numbers from places where they ask you to take a number, and that's about three times the size of the next largest collection. Well, then, I'd certainly say that makes you a leader in your field. And I'm sure our audience would like to know how it all got started. Well, like so many great things, it was an accident. One hot summer day about four years ago, I took my little boy, Mulford Jr., to an ice cream parlor near our house. When I saw a thing on the counter that said, please take a number to be served, I naturally took one. And that was the beginning of your collection, eh? Well, not right away, Neil. See, I hadn't planned to keep the number. It was this big plastic one, the kind they use over and over. I just wanted to hear the number called, then I would gladly have given it back. Well, something must have happened there to turn you from an ordinary consumer into an avid hobbyist. What was it? The number I took was 72, and the next one the clerk called was 56. As I say, it was a hot afternoon, and the place was crowded. And your little boy was whimpering for ice cream. <laughs> yes, that was the real key to the thing. I knew Mulford Jr. couldn't wait until they'd served everybody from 56 to 72. So I started to put my plastic number back on the rack and leave. And something stopped you? Some other people had come in and taken numbers, so that made 75 for the next card showing on the rack. Presenting the problem of whether to put your number back or just take it with you. So you took it, thus starting your collection. <laughs> right. How did you know? Have I told you this story before? No. I just guessed that might be the ending. But it's still hard to imagine how you'd get 1,200 examples for your collection in just four years. Well, when you just take a number and leave, it doesn't take nearly as long as taking a number and waiting to be served. That figures. Also, I get specimens from other collections all over the world. Like this. It's from a hobbyist in Russia and the prize of my collection. I can see why. The Russians seem to make their number tickets out of woven straw. The number on this one is 2541, which certainly would indicate that consumers have to wait longer to be served than we do here. Yes, yes. The gentleman who sent me this ticket said it came from an auto showroom. I guess they have quite a shortage of new cars there. He wrote that he'd have to wait about four years to be served if he ever took a number to keep for himself. You know, it's really interesting when numbers have stories like that to go with them. I'll say. Here's the oldest one I have, dating back to the time of the Oklahoma land rush. It's carved out of wood, and the number on it is one. One? 
It was used, I'm told, in a remote area where the storekeeper only had two customers, so he only needed one ticket in case he was serving a customer and the other one came in. That's ridiculous, Mr. Thoxter. <laughs> I know. I made up that story. You said they were interesting. I'm sure the listeners appreciate your effort to make the collection seem more interesting than it is. And thanks for being with us in the Hobby Hut. Have a good day and find a good hobby. Everyone. And now, here's the news you've all been waiting for from the Monongahela Metal Foundry. We've got a winner in our giant sweepstakes contest to select a trade name for Monongahela's new number four size steel ingot. Our lucky first prize contestant is Mr. Elroy K. DePew of Rural Route Number One in Carthage, Missouri. Congratulations, Mr. DePew. And the winning name suggested by Mr. DePew was Alfred. Congratulations again to you, sir, and your fortune and prizes will be on its way to you first thing tomorrow. And so this ends another installment of the Bob and Ray Show, coming to you from somewhere. All material was written by Bob Elliott and Ray Goulding and specially reenacted for the 2020 Sonic Summerstock Playhouse by John Bell and Pete Lutz. Music was performed by Dr. Ross Bernhardt at the Mighty Wurlitzer Organ. And sound effects were performed remotely by Campy, the magic water dolphin at SeaWorld, Orlando, Florida. Post-production and mixing by Pete's Milkman, who also knits mittens for the friendly mechanics at Tommy Ingo's House of Tires in Lost Dog Falls, Vermont. Uh, does anyone have a milkman anymore? And now this is Ray Goulding saying right if you get work. And Bob Elliott reminding you to hang by your thumbs. Good night, folks. Good night. Sixty-three audio. This is mutual. And that's this week's performance from the Sonic Summerstock Playhouse. All productions, features, characters and scripts presented in the Playhouse belong strictly to their respective copyright holders and no copyright infringement is assumed or intended. The Sonic Summerstock Playhouse is part of the Sonic Society and a proud member of the Mutual Audio Network and any shows that continue their run must receive express permission from all parties involved. Join us next week for another classic performance. For our announcer, Jack Ward, I'm your host, David Alt. Good night. This has been an Electric Vicuna production. Happy Holidays from all of us here at the Mutual Audio Network. <laughs>